During the course of Wendy's time working at various different scientific companies, invariably the most awkward night of the year would be the time we would be invited to the end of year party or Christmas party or winter party or whatever they were calling it that year. Uh, it was usually held at some fancy place, a country club or a fancy restaurant. One time, there was one even held at the Museum of Science, which was pretty cool. If you've never had bacon-wrapped scallops while staring at a T-Rex, uh, it's an experience I would recommend. <laughs> but usually, these nights were pretty uncomfortable and a little bit awkward. It would start even before we ever left with the question of, well, what are we supposed to wear? Are we supposed to be formal? Well, it said business casual. Well, what's business casual mean? And then it would go right to when we pulled up. Well, where do we park? Should we valet? Will they even valet a minivan? I don't even know if they'll do that. And then it continued throughout the night. You sit down, try to find your table, and there's bread on the table. Can I eat the bread? Is anyone else eating the bread? What are you doing eating the bread? No one's eating the bread. There's a salad in front of me. Can I eat the salad? Which fork do I use? The one at top? The one on the side? Which one of these waters is mine? The one on my left? Oh, that guy grabbed that. Must be the one. Oh, uh, I guess I wasn't thirsty either. And throughout the night, it would be like that. We usually went all the time because it was a great meal at a place we normally wouldn't be able to eat at. But to be honest, once we got back in the car and I loosened up my tie, it was much more relaxing. On the way home sometimes when those nights were held in Boston and we had to drive home past Arlington, I would say to Wendy, hey, you want to stop at mom's ice cream shop? And she would no doubt emphatically say yes. And mom's ice cream shop wasn't a real ice cream shop. It was what my grandmother often referred to her place as, her house. You know, we would go over there for ice cream and she would say, you like mom's ice cream shop? And oftentimes, coming home from these fancy dinners, we'd stop by in Arlington. We wouldn't call first, one, because back then every call on a cell phone cost something, and two, because it really wasn't necessary, because we knew that they would be home, and we knew that if the Red Sox were playing, they would be up watching the game. So we'd pull up to their house, and I'd walk in the door and say, anybody home? And sooner or later, my grandfather would say, Gene! Ricky's here, and Wendy, <laughs> and my grandmother would come upstairs if she was downstairs walking, watching the game, and, and she'd greet us, and without saying a word, you'd hear the click, 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 and the burner on the stove would go on underneath the corning coffee pot that was already on the burner. And we would be welcomed there, and there'd be ice cream cones with Spumoni ice cream, no chocolate in mine, and we would sit at their table and we would talk, and we would watch the game. If it was uh, evening and dark out, uh, down their basement, if it was a nice night, we'd sit out on the swing on the patio and listen to it. It was a comfortable place. Walk in, the conversation, my grandfather would say, the Sox are losing. We would say, I know. We were listening to it in the car. Can you believe the decision Grady Little made? And on and on it would go. Two very different experiences. The company Christmas party and coffee at my grandmother's house couldn't have been more different experiences. One had waiters in tuxedos. The other had a lady in her 80s wearing a house coat.
One served a chef-prepared and beautifully plated meal on expensive plates. The other grabbed a cookie tin with some homemade pizzeries in it from the top of the refrigerator and put it in the middle of the table. One took place in an exquisitely decorated room with carefully chosen fixtures and artwork on the walls and a, the other in a dated kitchen with a linoleum floor and green formica countertop. One, I felt like every move I made was being watched, scrutinized, judged. The other, I knew no one cared how I was dressed or even if I used a fork. I don't know about you, but I'll take the second over the first anytime. When it comes to when you walk into a church, what is the feeling that you get? Does it feel more like you're walking into a stuffy, formal restaurant or country club where every move you make is watched and scrutinized and judged? Or does it feel more like you're walking into whatever that comfortable place is for you? And what makes the difference? Those are two completely different atmospheres. I think one thing that makes the difference when it comes to church, that can make the difference between an atmosphere where people come in and they're welcomed and people, and an atmosphere where people come in and they feel scrutinized and judged and informal are the words that we speak. Our words create an atmosphere. They create an atmosphere around us. They create an atmosphere in our home and they create an atmosphere in our church. And I want to look this morning at some words that the Apostle James tells us in the book of James in the Bible. Two sets of words. One set of words that when we speak them, they create a hurtful, a, a unwelcoming, and a closed atmosphere. And another set of words that if we will speak them, they create an open, a welcoming, and actually a healing atmosphere which is the atmosphere we want to create in our church with one another that we're talking about in this series. First, we're going to look at the words that, are, that we would speak that would create a hurtful atmosphere and an unwelcoming atmosphere. So I'm going to be looking at James chapter 4, and we're going to start with verses 11 through 12. James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And here's what James says, how we're supposed to... Uh, treat, or in this case, not speak to one another. James chapter 4, verse 11 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver, and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to judge your neighbor? James says, when it comes to one another, do not speak evil against one another. Well, let's just take a few minutes. What is it to speak evil against one another? Why is it wrong? And why is it so hard for us to keep this command? What is it to speak evil against one another? Why is it wrong? And why is it so hard for us to keep this command? Well, speaking evil against one another, certainly at the very minimum, James is saying don't slander 
Don't, don't speak something false or wrong against another person. But the language here that James is using is actually not limited to untruth. It's not limited to something that might not be true about another person. He's actually saying, even if you know a truth about another person, but it would be speaking against that. It would be bringing them down a notch. It would be used to kind of take them down in the eyes of other people. Then don't speak evil against one another. This is sometimes a hard concept for us to understand. One scholar I read, R. Kent Hughes, I thought he put it well why this is so difficult. He said this, he says, personally, I can think of few commands that go against commonly accepted conventions more than this. Most people think it's okay to convey negative information if it is true. We understand that lying is immoral, but is passing on a damaging truth immoral? It seems almost a moral responsibility. By such reasoning, criticism behind another's back is thought to be all right as long as it is true. Thus, many believers use truth as a license to righteously diminish others' reputation. That's what R. Kent Hughes says. He says this is so difficult for us because there's something within us that thinks, well, even though this is something negative against another person, it's true. So not only is it okay for me to share it, I might even have a moral obligation to share it. If we're not careful, we can convince ourselves and deceive ourselves, really, into thinking that finding fault in others and then sharing that fault, only if it's true, of course. I mean, I wouldn't say it if it isn't true is some kind of spiritual gift and spiritual service to God and the body of Christ. That to find fault in others is, is a service of some way to the body of Christ and to God. And James is saying, it is not. It is not. Don't speak evil against one another. James is saying here that even if the information is true about another person, we're not to speak evil against one another in the body of Christ and the church. We're not to use our words in a critical manner to bring that person down. The reason for this, James tells us, is because when we do it, we move outside of our proper role. When we speak evil against another person, we are actually acting as that person's judge and not as a fellow follower of God, but actually acting as God himself in their life and pronouncing a judgment upon their life. James says, you're not God. You're not the judge. That's not your place. James says there's only one God who's able to save and destroy, and you are not him. He closes this section with a question. Who are you to judge your neighbor? It's very reminiscent to me of Paul's question in Romans chapter 14, verse 4, where he says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? To his own master... He stands or falls. In fact, this is a verse I quote often to myself when I face the temptation to stand as judge and critic of a fellow believer. I often say in my own head, to his own master, he stands or falls. Who am I to judge the servant of another? He does, I'm not the master to his own master, to God himself. He stands or falls. 
Very literally, James and Paul are trying to say to us, who do you think you are? What right do you have by speaking your evil words, by speaking your criticism to pass judgment on your neighbor? What right do you have? It's like Job, when God speaks to Job and asks him a bunch of questions and illustrates, you don't have, you have a very limited power and perspective. In fact, the Bible says we barely even know our own hearts. Even our own hearts are deceitful and wicked. How can you presume to know the heart of another person completely? Now you might say, Pastor, does that mean anything goes? We just have to let everyone live their life and never recognize sin? Are you saying we don't maintain standards and have expectations for people following the Lord, especially people when it comes to leadership and teaching? Nope, I'm not saying that. That's not what I'm saying and that's not what James is saying. There are clearly scriptures that call us to have discernment and good judgment. And especially when it comes to teachers. And especially when it comes to leaders. There are places in scripture where there are standards that were given for leaders. And standards that leaders are supposed to hold to. There are other places in scripture where like Matthew chapter 7. It says beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly are ravenous wolves. Well what is beware of false prophets? How do you beware of them if it does not mean exercise good judgment and discernment. But there is a vast difference between using judgment and being judgmental. Using judgment is discernment. Being judgmental is, according to dictionary.com, having or displaying an excessively critical point of view. Using judgment is looking at a person's fruit and evaluating whether they are a person you should follow and listen to. Being judgmental is telling everyone else about your findings. Using judgment is unfollowing someone, perhaps on social media. Being judgmental is lobbing verbal missiles in the comment section or in your own posts for everyone else to see. James says, do not speak evil of one another. One of the reasons we have such a problem with this line between using judgment and being judgmental in the church and really in general, I believe, is because we are so good as people and so practiced at being judgmental. I mean, we do it all the time. It's such a part of our life. Think about it. Do any of these statements sound familiar? Have any of these ever come out of your mouth this morning or any day? Something like, do these weather people ever, do these weather people actually get paid to be wrong? Or you'd lose your head if it wasn't attached to your neck. Or don't they teach you anything in school? Where did that person learn to drive? The sign says 12 items or less. Can't you read? Speed limit 20. Are you kidding me? The person who made that sign never drove this road. I said no sugar. How hard is it to make a cup of coffee with no sugar? How on earth did that person ever get that promotion? Anyone would do a better job than them. And that's just the morning. <laughs> we are so good at being judgmental. The Bible tells us, of course, to use good judgment, to have discernment, and we're to do that. But we need to be careful to understand the difference between using judgment and being judgmental. What's the difference between using judgment and being judgmental? Or how do you know when you're crossing that line? 
I think two things maybe you want to make sure you're avoiding. One, (laughs) you have to remember that you are not a person's final judge. That no matter what you learn about someone, their views of life, how they live their life, no matter what you learn about them, you do not get to pronounce their final destiny upon them. You don't get to condemn them. That is God's role and God's alone. To his own master he stands or falls. Be careful of the Christian cancel culture. Oftentimes when someone messes up, maybe a high profile Christian, we often don't pray for them, mourn for them, or extend grace to them. We just immediately cancel them. Stop paying attention to them. Write them off. Be careful, you don't get to pronounce the final judgment. That is God's and God's alone. And when you start pronouncing judgment on people, you're crossing the line from judgment into being judgmental. Secondly, true or not, don't share information against another person with other people. You say, am I not supposed to tell my kids to watch out for certain things? No, at times that's appropriate. You have to lead your children. But what's better? Teach your kids to have discernment so they can decide for themselves and so you don't have to speak those words. We speak against each other far too easily. If we have to, for some reason, share something that is against another person to another person, we ought to do it with the utmost trepidation and fear of the Lord and even ask the Lord, Lord, could you bring about this information that I really feel is absolutely necessary to be shared? Could you even bring it about in another way so I don't have to share it? Because I'm not saying there aren't times where you need to share something, especially when someone else's safety or is, is in jeopardy. There are times when we need to watch out for that. I'm not saying cover up things. I'm not saying hide it. By no means am I saying that. I'm saying that if you're just speaking something in order to bring someone down, you're not doing it for someone else's safety. You're not doing it to protect people. You're just doing it to, to bring someone else down then be careful because James says, do not speak against another person. This verse is often can be misused to say that, well, don't ever say anything even if it means it's going to protect someone. No, that's not what this verse is saying. I'm not saying cover things up, but we far too easily criticize and overly criticize people on these things. Okay, so when we speak against another person, we cause pain and create an atmosphere of criticism and hurt in a closed atmosphere. So what words can we speak to create the opposite type of atmosphere? What words create an atmosphere in our church of hope and help and healing? Those words are in the next chapter. James chapter 5 verse 16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. See, it's not an atmosphere of cover-up we want. It's actually an atmosphere where we would confess our sins to one another. And the truth is, when we have a judgmental atmosphere in our church, it keeps people from confessing sins. It keeps things in the dark. It keeps things from being exposed to the light. And it it pushes people into hiding things. It pushes people away because they know I'm going to be judged. They know I'm going to be kicked out. I can't confess. This isn't a safe place. So I'm just going to hide it. 
right, and I'm just going to cover it up. But James says, if you will speak words of confessing your sins to one another, if you will speak words of praying for one another, then you will be healed. Could there be more opposite words spewing uh, words against one another on the one hand or confessing your sins to one another and praying for one another on the other? When we confess our sins to one another, we recognize that all of us are imperfect travelers on this road. I have a long way to go and so do you. But we're striving together to love the Lord and people together. When I confess my sins to you, there's a level of openness and vulnerability that has to be present. We confess our sins. See, this is, this is the key to it. When we create a judgmental atmosphere, we cause people to hide and cover up their sins and keep it in the darkness. When we create an atmosphere that, no, we are a body of people who love one another. And as a part of that love, we confess our sins to one another. And we pray for one another. And so things come out in the open that otherwise will be pushed in the dark. You say, okay, but I've never seen a confessional in the church. Do you want me to just go around telling everyone my sins? No, that's not what I'm saying. But you're not supposed to tell them to no one either. Find people in your life. How many people in your life do you have that really know you? That really you are fully open with? Look for that. When we confess our sins to one another, we expose them to the light. We shine a light on things that have grown in dark places in our lives. In order to find a place of confession, you go first. Identify a person and say, hey, I really need someone in my life to pray for me and who I can confide in. Maybe like Pastor Rick said on Sunday morning, do you think you might be that person? Can we grab a cup of coffee each week? Can we talk on the phone? Because I think you're traveling in the same direction. You're striving to be more the man of God. You're striving to be more the woman of God that God called you to be. And let's do that together. And we need that. We need to do that. We need to create this kind of atmosphere in our church. So we first need to eliminate words against one another. And then we need to initiate an atmosphere of confessing sin and praying for one another. That's the type of place that we want. There's a story in Scripture in John chapter 4 that I'm not going to read that I think illustrates this perfectly if you want to go read it sometime. It's a story of Jesus and the woman at the well. And this woman at the well had five husbands and was living in a man that wasn't her husband and she encounters Jesus. And if there was ever a moment to be judgmental and if there was ever a person who had a right to judge, it was this moment and it was this person, Jesus. But instead, her sin comes out into the open. He doesn't excuse it. He recognizes it. But he also offers her an invitation to be fully known and fully loved, an invitation to eternal life through him. And this woman eventually goes and tells other people in her town about Jesus and what he did. And then it says the whole town came out because of what the woman had said. And the whole town came out and many believed in Jesus as their savior. And it came about because Jesus created a place at the well where a woman could be fully known not her sin excused, but her sin recognized, confessed out in the open and fully loved. And a town was changed because of it. Our church, our home ought to be places, not 
of the staunch, the, the stuffy country club. But they ought to be places where people can come in and confess their sins to one another, pray for one another, and find healing. What kind of atmosphere are you creating with your words? What kind of atmosphere are your words creating in your home? Are your words creating a place where people can confess their sin, or are they creating a place where people are fearful and end up hiding in the darkness things that need to be brought to light? Our response today, commit to not speaking evil against one another. And if you don't have a person in your life who you can confess your sins to, then ask the Lord to show you who that person is. Let's be the kind of church that has a welcoming, healing atmosphere where we can come in and confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. Mount Hope, let's do this all in Jesus' name. God bless you.